Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brother Grant and to Diana for leading us in praise to our King who is worthy to receive it. We proclaim that all glory and all majesty and all honor are His alone. And we confess with our voices. And I pray that our lives and our actions as well. Today, 500 years ago, Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Arms, which is the council convened to convict Martin Luther of blasphemy and heresy. And Luther declared, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And so that spirit continues to this day. This world will hiss and it will bark, but we will not be swayed. Well, I want to give you a quick update on our brothers and sisters at Grace Life Church up in Canada and Pastor Coates. I know Brother Harold shared with you that after jailing the pastor, they put up walls and fencing around the church to prevent entry. Uh, by the congregants. Well, last Sunday, over 200 uniformed police officers, 40 police vehicles, and just for good measure, one police helicopter guarded the church to keep out any worshipers. Now, this is just an update for you, but it's also a call for reflection. Grace Life is not a fringe church. These are not zealots with an odd theology. Their pastor is a dear brother in the Lord. He's a graduate of the Master's Academy, a sound expositor of the Word. What they preach there is what we preach here. What your pastor believes. What their pastor believes, your pastor believes. So I don't want us to watch the events in Canada with any degree of separation. Like we're looking through the glass. The only thing that separates us from a church like Grace Life is geography. And a constitution which is also under assault. So please be praying for Grace Life Church. Well, last week we completed our three-part series on the Great Trilemma, didn't we? And I pray it was a blessing for you as we continue our march down the road in Mark's Gospel this morning. Beginning a brand new chapter. This is a chapter that is exciting and daunting all at the same time. There's so much to see here. And you'll notice in our text today that we have more verses than we have ever dared cover in a single message. Twelve whole verses, so I hope everyone packed a lunch. Yeah. Well, the funny part there is you're actually not quite sure if your pastor's kidding or not. But it is a monumental teaching that we find ourselves at this morning. So without any further delay, let's tune our expository ears, let's open our hearts, and engage our minds for our text this morning. Mark 4, 1 through 12. Mark 4, 1 through 12. And as he began to teach again by the sea... And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And he was saying to them in his teachings, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it happened that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. And the other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun rose, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns 
And the thorns came up and they choked it and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell into the good soil and they grew up and increased. They were yielding a crop and producing 30, 60 and a hundred fold. Yes, amen. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are incredible words, incredible teaching by the Master. As you commanded in this text, we ask for ears to hear this morning. Give us eyes to see your truth. It's you are a God of special revelation given through your word. You have made knowing you and knowing your son an act of revelation. Though you shout in creation that you are from everlasting to everlasting, many will suppress this truth and unrighteousness. We must be made to hear. Lord, where our hearing has become dulled by sin or apathy, we ask that you break through that and deposit this word in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, anyone who's ever seen the mail that gets left on pastor's desk is likely to see brochures and colorful flyers from all different sorts of ministries and companies and church growth people that want to help your church get bigger. They have all sorts of different systems and algorithms. Six months to double your attendance, they say. Employ our system and you are guaranteed results. They'll love it. It'll be a church explosion extravaganza. They say if your church is small, pastor, you're doing it wrong. God, get the growth that God wants you to have by using our 10-step method. Well, I have to smile when I get these. One thing we can say for certain is that they definitely are not familiar with the parable of the soils. Either they've never heard it, or they forgot that they heard it, or they did not have ears to hear it. You see, the purpose of this entire parable, saint, the purpose of the entire parable is to explain why people respond to the gospel in the way that they do. That's what this is all about. Why can I share the gospel with four friends over dinner, three look at me like I'm crazy, and one is left thinking? Why is that? That's where we're driving at today. It's often easier for us to kind of keep our bearings as we work through this amazing section if we know where we're headed. That's where we're going. So one thing that should jump out to you as we read our text today is that it sounds different than anything else we've read in Mark up to this point. And you would be right. Remember what Mark is. Okay, remember his tone and his tenor. Mark is our gospel of action. It's our gospel that uses the word immediately 42 times, right? This is a gospel that shows you who Jesus is, not so much by what he says, but by what he does, right? He's a savior on the move. So this text this morning should sound very different in your ears. What do we see here? This is Jesus teaching. And teaching extensively. This is one of the very few places in Mark where you will see Jesus speak in any sort of lengthy discourse or spoken word. Well, what does that mean to you? It means it's really, really important. 
If it's important enough for Mark's gospel that's normally going 90 miles an hour everywhere he's going for him to slow down to a crawl and say, listen to these words, listen to this teaching. This is something we should pay attention to. So having come methodically through the first three chapters thus far, the reason and the need for Jesus giving this parable in this context is going to become quite clear. Consider the historical and the religious climate that we're in. First question, was the people, was this people a people that were actively looking for Messiah? Yes, absolutely. Was the coming of the Holy One of Israel just a, a theoretical musing for these, for these people? Or were they on high alert for a military champion to come and free them from the bondage of the Romans? The latter, yes? Yes. We need to grab hold of this because if we're to understand Jesus' purpose clearly, Jesus has not come on the scene in a time where nobody was looking for him. No, everyone was looking for him. This was not an out of the blue, here's Jesus. No, every day we're saying, could it be this guy? What about this guy? I heard about him. What about this guy? There's this guy out in the wilderness. He's claiming some pretty wild stuff. He's baptizing people, telling them to repent. He's eating locusts and honey. Maybe it could be him. Speaking of John the Baptist, they are looking. So here's our conundrum. Here's what the disciples are just not understanding. How is it that we are here? We have seen the miracles with our own eyes. The crowds by the tens of thousands have seen the miracles with their own eyes. The scribes and teachers proclaim that no man speaks like this man. And the demons are running in terror. He's claimed divinity and he's backed it up with authentication. And he's performed, as we taught a few weeks ago, all of what are considered to be the messianic miracles. Miracles that only the Christ can perform. So the question we're having, Jesus, is what are all these people's problem? You are ticking every box right in front of their eyes in accordance with their own teaching. And they don't hail you as Messiah. In fact, they hate you for it. And I've even heard murmurings, they want to kill you for it. We don't understand. Why don't our countrymen see what we see? Why can't my children see what we see? How can they not see what is right before their eyes? You're leaving them speechless by the thousands, Jesus. And yet there's no revival. There's no coronation ceremony that's being planned in Jerusalem. Nothing, nothing. In fact, we see that even by the end of Jesus' ministries, how large was Jesus' actual true following? Well, about 500 in Galilee, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, and about 120 in Jerusalem, Acts 1, 15. That is 620 people that we know of. 620. In a world that could have gone to the edge of the seashore and have listened to God himself speak, that could have seen a leper healed, that could have seen a blind man given sight, miracles upon miracles, only 620 people at the end of all that. How is that possible? The last Super Bowl was 22,000. Jesus Christ himself had about 620 documented people that we know of following him actively when he left this earth in a cultural and religious climate that was dedicated to looking for him, to ferreting out who he might be. 
This caused many consternation. I would think that the stadium would fill with true fans. It doesn't. It doesn't. Thus, we see this very question. There's a heart, the heart of a man in Luke 13. No need to turn there. But he asked Jesus, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Are there just a few? Can you hear that question? Can you hear the thrust behind the question? The seed is being scattered everywhere. Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Yes, the crowd throngs when there's a show to be seen or a miracle to be had. But now it's just us. Why? Everyone who is a believer in here can relate to this man. Everyone who has been born again, who has been raised to new life, who has seen a heart and a new creation made inside of them, that you have a joy you've never known before. And Christ is precious to you above all else. You've encountered a gospel that has not been added to your life. It's all-encompassing. It's all-consuming. You've given it in exchange for your life. And everyone around me, why can nobody see this? Why does nobody else desire my Savior? Who's so amazing. This needs to be explained. And so Jesus does. That's what this parable is about. Jesus is going to explain why people respond to the gospel the way that they do. Why so few will enter in the narrow way. And how does Jesus explain this? What does he do with a parable? He does it with a parable, right? He does it with a story. Well, what's a parable? This comes from the word parabole, where we get the word parallel from, right? We're setting something alongside something else to give you a comparison. That's what it means. That's all a parable is. It's not a super secret story or, or mystical in any way. It's very plain speech given very plainly. I want you to understand a spiritual truth. So here's an analogy. But people get wrapped around the axle with parables or they look for hidden meanings or deeper meanings or worse yet, allegory. But nope, there it is. It's right there floating on the surface. And it must be simple. It must be accessible because that's what makes it, on one hand, so encouraging and yet so very damning on the same stroke. You don't reject the truth in this parable because you can't understand it or because you needed a secret knowledge. To get it, like a Gnostic, you cannot see because you will not see. And you cannot hear because you will not hear. Your disobedience and hardness of heart now prevent you from hearing. That's why it's so often said that a parable has two functions, right? To reveal and to conceal. One theologian writes, quote, parables are a work of grace to make clear to the believer spiritual truth. And they are a work of judgment to obscure truth from a non-believer. The popular image of Jesus is that Jesus was a rather benign or somewhat simplistic spiritual teacher. And he's sort of unloading his spiritual lessons for everybody to learn. That's not true. That's not true. When Jesus told a parable, on the one hand, to those who believed, it was a revelation of grace to make spiritual truth clear. And on the other hand, to those who did not believe, it was an act of judgment to hide the truth from them. But why would God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God conceal his message as if it were somehow unfair? Unfair. It was most necessary at this point. Jesus was not new on the scene at this juncture, was he? 
We're well into Jesus' ministry. We saw in Mark that Jesus was going about to all the towns and villages in Galilee. Mark 1.38. Not only that, but Jesus had done enough right in front of their eyes that they were able to say in chapter 3 that this work and these miracles are done by Satan. You see what We see what you're doing, Jesus, and this is the devil's work. That's why the introduction of a parable here is terrifying. It's terrifying. Yes, because we know what that means. Yes, it's ministering to the believers, but it's casting judgment on the unbelievers. That's what a parable does. If you're hearing a parable and you don't get it, you're in big trouble. In fact, that has never been truer than this parable right here. Skip down for a sneak peek. No need to turn there. This will be next week. But what does verse 13 say? Mark 4, 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? I won't give away the goods on that yet, but understand for your context, this is the big one. If you don't get this one, you're doomed. But conversely, saints, if you do get this one, you'll understand them all. Wow, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying right here. Elements of every parable are wrapped into this in some way or by an overarching meta narrative. We have over 60 parables, right? So over 60 parables in scripture. This one is the key to them all. That's what he's saying. So with that, let's dive into our text. Mark 4, verse 1. Mark 4, verse 1. And he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Well, what sea are we talking about here? Of course, it's the Sea of Galilee. And once again, we see the theme of Mark. What do we see? The crowd, right? The crowd. And our term here is very large here. Guess what that means? Very large, right? We're talking about thousands, which only reinforces the question. The unsettledness in their spirit brewing in the hearts of the disciples. Are there only a few being saved? Look at the thousands. Are there only a few being saved? It says they gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. A few quick things here to notice. Look up in your, look up in your Bibles to chapter 3 verse 9. Okay, just one page back. Do you recall the usage for the word boat there? You remember that? That'd be for our A students in here. This was ploiarion, right? Meaning a small boat or a canoe style. And we said this was to be expected. Why? Because they were away from Capernaum at the time and the disciples would not have had their fishing vessels, right? It speaks to the accuracy of Scripture. No fisherman is going to let you borrow his fishing boat. Any guy in here with a nice truck knows exactly what I'm talking about. But here we are back in Capernaum. We see that from the verses above. He's back in Capernaum. So now we see the word ploion. Ploion. Now this is a fishing style boat. This is a larger vessel. It makes sense, right? They're back in Capernaum where the fishing industry was. I don't want you to become experts in ancient fishing vessels. I want you to trust the word of God that's in your hands. That's why I tell you these things. I want you to trust the word of God that you have in your hands. Jesus got into the ploion, into the boat in the sea, and he sat down. Now, these words are very unusual in their writing pattern for Mark. The flow, the pattern, which means 
he's trying to allude to something else. Mark is writing on a different level, and indeed here I believe he is. Mark is possibly sneaking in a veiled claim of deity here. The psalmist writes in Psalm 29.10 that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This is the same usage that Mark is using, in which case Jesus is putting himself in the place of God here. Now we can't say that Mark had this in his mind for sure, but it seems likely, seeing as how he went out of his way to write differently, in a different pattern and cadence than he usually does, that he's trying to say something else. And if so, praise God, right? What a wonderful parallel. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. In verse 2, Mark 4, verse 2, how did Jesus teach them? And he was teaching them many things in parables. Well, Jesus, his preferred method of teaching was parables, right? It's, that was how he did it. We see it all over Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Interestingly enough, the apostle of love, John, he includes no parables in the gospel. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. Again, attesting to the accuracy of Scripture. These are not carbon copies. We love having the different emphases, right? That's why the Puritans referred to the four Gospels as a beautiful diamond. That's why sometimes we have to rotate the diamond, right? To see the different aspects. It throws and casts different bits of light up onto the wall for us. So parables are a lot like a stained glass window. If you look at them from the outside, if you look at them from the outside, looking in, how do they look? Drab and dreary and dirty, completely unremarkable. But what if you're on the inside? How does that stained glass window look? Completely different. Remember the stained glass window and you will understand the meaning of parables. Why some get it and some don't. Why Jesus used them almost exclusively when teaching the public. So there's your introduction to the parable. Let's begin looking at this. The first thing I want you to note is the title we've selected. A Tale of Four Soils. Now it's commonly known as, a, as the parable of the sower, you might have heard, right? Or even the parable of the seeds. But both seem to miss the main point. This is not a parable about the sower. Very little is said about the sower. This is not even a parable about the seeds. The seeds serve one function. It's singular in its identification and its role and its application, right? It's just spread everywhere. No, this is a story. This is a parable about the soils, the different soils, the soils that make up the hearts of men. Why do people respond the way they do to the gospel? Why can two children raised in the same home with the same love and care, the same teaching, the same standards and affections, and, and one loves the Lord and one rejects Christ completely? There are thousands on this shoreline. Are only a few being saved, Lord? Are only a few? Jesus begins in verse 3. Mark 4, verse 3. Listen to this. Stop there. Those are powerful and unique words. Remember we spoke last week about the usage behold, didn't we? Behold. Well, meaning, hey, listen up, right? Something unique or consequential is about to be said. And here we see the one who spoke the universe into existence saying, listen to this. I'm inclined to listen. Behold. And by the way, just a note of trivia, this is the only place in Scripture where we see listen and behold together in one place. The only place. I.e., this is important. 
Behold, the sower went out to sow. Here, there's no underlying meaning that Jesus is using. He really is just using plain analogy that everyone would understand. They were farmers. So let's talk seed, planting, harvesting. All of this sowing that he's talking about, it would have been done by hand. You would hoist a seed bag up onto your, up onto your back. You'd have a small opening in it and you would use your hands to scatter the seed. That's where the word broadcasting comes from. Broadcasting. Okay? And we're going to see this in the parable. A sower who is so intent on gleaning any and all possible harvest that he is going to put seed in every nook and cranny that can be found. Even where you would look and say, there's no way something is going to be able to grow there. Early church father Justin Martyr said the farmer sowed, quote, in hopes that good soil might somewhere be found, close quote. Yet what we find is that between thorns and rocks and other adversities, three quarters of the labor will be lost. Those are the numbers. So let's see where the seed goes. What's the first soil? Verse four, Mark four, verse four. And it happened that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road and the birds came and ate it up. Well, by saying, and it happened, we're saying that seed falling here, it can be a consequence of simply scattering the seed. It's not that the sower felt that this was the best place to plant it, right? But there it is. There the seed is. And anyone who's ever used maybe a weed and feed spreader, have you? Or a grass seed spreader? How about on those driveway edges, right? You try and keep it on the good grass, but as it happens, where does some end up? On the driveway, right? On the sidewalk, right? So what road is verse four talking about here? Does this mean a, a planter is planting alongside an actual road? Well, not exactly. Remember back earlier in chapter two, when Jesus and his disciples, they got scolded by the Pharisees, right? For walking along a road and picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. That's the kind of road we're talking about here. These were paths that were used for walking that ran through farmers fields. And this is important. Why? Because the farmer, the sower, is in his field. He's in his field. He's not out in left field where someone would say, why on earth are you planting there? Why would anyone do that? He's in his field. But these seeds that fall alongside of the road, this ground is packed down. It is hardened by the constant pounding of foot traffic. Seed was commonly plowed in after after being sowed in ancient Palestine. But here it is at the edge of the road where it would not be plowed in. And because it's not plowed in, what comes along? Indeed, what was likely already there following the sower as he sowed, flying right above his shoulders? Birds. You knew when someone was sowing back in ancient Palestine. Look for the birds. They're right there waiting to eat the seed. It never got plowed in. And the ground on which it was scattered was made hard by the drumming and the pounding of feet. In fact, Luke even adds in his writing of the parable that what the birds didn't eat was actually crushed and trampled under the feet of those who used the path. How about our second soil? Verse 5 and 6. And other seed, Mark 4, 5 and 6, and other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun rose, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. 
Well, here we need to understand the historical context if we're going to understand this one. When it says rocky ground, we're not talking about surface rocks or, or small rocks or maybe little rocks that are mixed into the dirt. All of that would have been pulled out by hand or by rakes when you were preparing the ground. This is very different. Anyone who's ever been to Israel will tell you that it is an extremely rocky place, but not merely in what you can see. One of the unique aspects of Israel is, is that it is covered in limestone bedrock. You can't see it, but just dig a little bit below the surface. And I mean just a short ways down, just below where the plow depth would hit. And there it is, limestone bedrock. So in goes the seed. And it's good topsoil. It's full of nutrients and life. And Jesus says it sprang up. Well, why did it spring up? That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? No, it sprang up because it couldn't go down. The roots hit the bedrock. It can't go deep. I can't go down, so I'm going to spring up. In fact, any farmer in here can look at his field. And if he sees an area that's higher than the others that sprang up quickly, that's bad. That's bad. The sun rose and it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. It couldn't get down to the water. Couldn't get down to the table. Such a tragedy. The second soil covered the real nemesis. Unseen to the eye, the limestone bedrock right below the surface. How about our third soil? Verse 7. And other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Hmm. The ground was tilled. The ground was tilled. There's no bedrock to keep it from going down. No birds ate it, and no feet crushed it. But these thorns, these weeds were there, and they grow alongside the good crop. And they steal the resources, the nutrients, the water. The word here is not strangled, though. It's choked. Think on that difference. There is a difference. Strangled and choked. Well, if we look away from these three soils for a moment to the seeds, we'll see something of a progression here. We'll see something of a progression. The first seed, it never even began, did it? Never even began. It was trampled and ate up. And the second took root. It took root and it started, but died. And the third actually survived with root, but did not end up producing any crop in the end. Well, ultimately, it doesn't matter which soil it was that killed it. There's no food on the table. There's no food on the table. So now we come to our fourth soil. Come to our fourth soil. Verse 8. There is some hope, because so far our ratio is not looking good. First three, foil, first three soils indeed failed. Mark 4, verse 8. Mark 4, verse 8. And other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they were yielding a crop and producing 30, 60, and 100 fold. Well, praise the Lord. Just to put this in perspective, a normal yield would be about fivefold, maybe tenfold for a real bumper crop. But 100 fold? And this is in multiples, remember. So this is a few thousand percent more. Jesus is saying that this good soil, remember the seed is the same. The sower is the same. The soil is going to blow away all expectations. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly 
more than all of you could ask or think. His hearers were farmers. They were farmers. A hundredfold increases more than they could ever ask, hope, or think was possible. Now we close out this section with a remarkable statement from Jesus in verse 9. Mark 4, verse 9. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? We pray it all the time, don't we? Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. But what are we saying? What's our plea here? Spurgeon rightly said, quote, There are many who have ears who do not hear to any real purpose. And there's the physical act of healing, of hearing, but they do not hear in the heart and the mind. It's a very different thing to have an impression on the drum of the ear and to have an impression on the tablet of the heart. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's that we be disciplined and drawn to listen and consider what we are being shown. Not distracted, not swayed. You who have been given the word, who have been given life, we must be intentional and we must be diligent to apply it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever hears my words and does them is a wise man. Listen, pay attention, give heed. If the Lord has opened your eyes and your ears and your mind to receive, you are obligated to act. You are responsible to act. You are responsible to change. Listen, because we will be held to account. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're being exhorted. We're being admonished here. Now, we have a lot of A students in our congregation. So as we move through this text, I wonder how many caught, beginning at verse 10 here, Mark's favorite literary device. Who sees it? How about I read verse 9 again? And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I'll skip down and read verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? Flows together, doesn't it? What do we have here? Another Markin sandwich. Verses 10 to 12 are the meat. 1 to 12 is bread. 13 to 20 is bread. 10 to 12 meat. We got that? Extra credit for whoever caught that. Well, then in verse 10, our meat, what does it say? Verse 10. And when he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began asking him about the parables. Jesus had just given one of the most remarkable parables ever to be given. How did the crowd start out in verse 4, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 1, how big was it? Such a very large crowd, Mark says. Large crowd, here for the show. Will there be a miracle today? What a spectacle. Instead, Jesus got into a boat and he starts talking about agriculture. I have no idea what he's saying. Let's go get dinner. Maybe tomorrow will be more exciting. The crowd was gone. And when he was alone, his followers along with the twelve. We just watched the parable of the soils happen before our very eyes. We just saw it in live action, didn't we? The crowd is gone. The word did not take hold. It was judgment upon them. They didn't understand. The word was preached by the Son of God and they left unconverted. They were taught by the creator of the universe. Nothing. Who remains? 
his followers along with the twelve. Could these followers have been part of the 70 disciples who later abandoned Christ? Could be. They sprung up so quickly to serve Jesus. And then the hard sayings came. And the sun beat down. And they withered. And here we are left with the disciples. Now recall a principle in Mark. Anytime we see a private setting in Mark. Jesus taking his disciples away. Getting alone with them. Remember, this is where revelation takes place. This is where Jesus dishes the goods. If we look at other accounts of this parable and the disciples response, get this. It actually portrays the disciples as being perturbed. They were annoyed with Jesus that he spoke in parables. Why are you telling these people these stories and just leaving them hanging? What good is that doing? You see this in Matthew 13, this annoyance. But what's the heart of this? Are the disciples truly concerned that others weren't getting it? Hmm. No, we see what in verse 13 of next week's text. Verse 13, they weren't getting it themselves, were they? They weren't getting it themselves. And they were frustrated. They were frustrated. Jesus gives quite a tender response to their ill-informed frustration. Verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables so that while seeing, they may not see and perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. This is remarkable. This is an insightful statement applied to the frustration of the disciples. It begins, and he was saying, and he was saying. The interesting thing about this is that this is written in the Greek in what's called the imperfect tense. That means that Jesus did not tell them this just once. He told them again and again, again and again. He kept on telling them. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Oh, be patient with one another. Be patient with one another because Christ has been so infinitely patient with us. What does he say first? To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Don't gloss over that. That's a huge statement. Number one, who is the only one who can reveal the mystery of the kingdom of God? Who possesses the mystery? God. It is the kingdom of God. It is God's gospel. This is his invention from start to finish. And here it says that the disciples have received a gift, doesn't it? A gift from Jesus. To you it has been given. If we look at their annoyance in Matthew 13, are they talking like people who know that they've just received the most extraordinary gift? No. That's what makes Jesus tender and continuous response so impactful jesus was the best pastor wasn't he what have they been given the first description of the gift is that it's a mystery it's a mystery well the english is no good for us here it's no good we use the word mystery like an agatha christie novel don't we who done it it's a mystery something that was unknowable un unexplainable an intangible entity but here the meaning is different this is a spiritual truth that has always existed. It has always been the plan of the ages. Jesus Christ coming, 
Being born of a virgin, living a perfect, sinless life, being crucified as a common criminal, dying a horrific death only to be raised by God the Father three days later. Showing himself to over 500 people and ascending before their very eyes into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father and ever lives to make intercession for the saints and is coming back for his bride. That, that has always been the plan of the ages. But much of it was veiled for most of redemptive in human history. Not unknowable, not an Agatha Christie novel, but veiled. The Old Testament is often compared to a dark room with a candle in the middle of it, and it flickers and it throws lights and it casts shadows on the wall, a hint of what to come, of what's to come, but it's just a shadow. When Jesus comes on the scene, he gives the mystery of the kingdom of God. Jesus walks into that room with the candle and he throws open the drapes and the sunlight comes flooding in for all who believe and have faith, which itself is beautiful, is it not? What else does scripture say is a gift? What else is a gift? Faith. Faith is a gift. Now the revealing of the mystery is a gift. The revealing of the mystery is a gift. And the faith to be able to receive this ministry, this mystery is also a gift. Once again, do we see how it's all of him from start to finish? It's all of him. That's good news. Sadly, many looked at that light. That light and that pure sunshine, they squinted and they said it's of the devil. Or they chose to explain it away. Thus, this parable is unintelligible to those who do not believe. Without faith in Christ, it is impossible to see. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. Jesus shows us that we are either on the outside or on the inside. It's binary. There's two choices, two positions. Every person you know is either on the inside or on the outside of Christ. Every person in history has fallen or been raised to this position. We all know that, but do we really process and live like that? Mostly for our mental well-being or our, or our desire to not see, we place the majority of people we meet into some enormous gray third category, don't we? When Scripture gives us no such option, inside and outside. To those outside, everything comes in parables. They are a condemnation to those who are willfully stubborn, who will not believe in the very existence of these people. The very presence of the Pharisees and those who covered their eyes and their ears were themselves a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 12, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. This is a summary of Isaiah 6, verse 9 and 10. And I want to read what the prophet actually said in completeness. Isaiah writes, and he said, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. This was describing the hearers of Jesus to a T, wasn't it? Do you remember the story of Isaiah? 
The Lord was looking for someone to send. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says, great, go preach to them. And just as an FYI, they won't hear you. They won't repent and they will not turn. Isaiah says, great. Thanks for that. Sounds like loads of fun. Uh, questions? How long do I have to do this? And by the way, why am I doing this? God says, you go preach till there's no one left to preach to. Your preaching, your message is judgment on these people. They won't listen. I send your message as a sign of coming accountability. When you share the gospel with someone, it may well be to their damnation. This opportunity to repent and turn to the gospel is recorded in the record books for all eternity. And you hardened your heart so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand lest they return and be forgiven. A parable coming to the people now in Mark. After seeing the unpardonable sin committed in chapter 3. After tens of thousands seeing the messianic miracles and the divine power on display. A parable now portends judgment for those who will not see. And now because you will not see, you cannot see. Before Jesus gives his explanation that we'll see next week, this is where we are left with a statement of condemnation that was wrought all the way back to Isaiah 6. But the call has not changed. The gospel has not changed. What Isaiah preached to the Jews who would be marched off to Babylon, they were accountable. And we today are even more accountable because a light has shone among us and many comprehended it not. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. We have the gospel sitting right in our hands. We hear the words of life spoken into our ears. And yet for those who would hear it today and harden their hearts, it's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thing. It's a dreadful thing. God says in Genesis 6, 3, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Today, today is the acceptable day of salvation. It doesn't matter how long you have sat in a church pew. If you are restless concerning the state of your salvation, make it right today, repentance and faith. We must hear the parable. Hear it well. Hear it well. Now, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out week after week for ears to hear and for eyes to see. But Lord, that you have shown us that it is all of you from start to finish. The revealing of the mystery and the faith to receive that mystery is all of you. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we had any part to play ultimately in our salvation, that you have been good to us. Lord, we ask, we know that sin and dullness can block our ears and block our eyes. We know that not spending time in your word as we should or not spending time in worship and prayer as we should, Lord, it dulls our hearing and our vision. Lord, we ask that you would sharpen that for us today. Lord, help us to adjust our priorities. Lord, we thank you that you have brought this word today. 
In Jesus' name, amen.